So the, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews, um, to a church, a, a gathering of saints, he, he instructed them to not give up with meeting together, but rather to do so more and more and more. As you see the day of Jesus approaching, of his return. It's what we're going to be talking about tonight as it happens. But when he encouraged people to gather together, to meet with one another as, as the people of God, he does so with a particular context and a particular purpose. And the context is it's because of Jesus. And if you're wanting to be encouraged in your walk with Jesus, and, and please, let's be honest, the world in which we live is not going to encourage us in our walk with Jesus. Um, sometimes uh, aggressively it's going to discourage us in our walk in Jesus, but oftentimes it simply is going to distract us. It's going to lead us astray. It's going to try and captivate our hearts with things that are false and would lead us into falsehood. This world, you know, it's not your friend <laughs> in terms of the pursuit of Jesus, of holiness. This world has many good characteristics. They're in there because God made this world. But when it comes to really pursuing Jesus, uh, the culture, the society, the nature of this world, its fallenness, it's not your friend. But in the book of Hebrews, we're pointed again to Jesus. We're pointed to one who is higher than all, is greater than all. He is the one who has made a new and a living way for us to be one with God. To come through even the very sacrifice of Jesus that we can come close to God. Don't be confused. Don't be confused about all the different pathways, the avenues, the possibilities of this world. There is only one way for us to be close to God. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. And we're hearing that a real challenge, but there's an invitation also. Because if you're willing to come through Jesus, his way, his truth, his life, don't accept any counterfeits, then you can come to the Father through Jesus Christ. You know, many people say that all roads lead to God. And, uh, you know, sometimes we as Christians were scandalized by such a, such a presumption. But the truth of the matter is, every road that a person chooses to live their life in will lead them to God. But there's only one road that you can follow that will lead you to God as your Father. And that is the way of Jesus Christ you're seeking to pursue any other route of life you will meet with God you'll meet with him at the day of judgment I would earnestly entreat you to meet with him before that to meet with him through Jesus Christ your saviour to get to know the love of God your father to receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ the right standing of Jesus it's the only kind of standing before God there's no other way of standing before him And this is what the writer to the Hebrew says. This is the context for why we meet. Because we're in Jesus. Please God, Jesus is in us. We're full of the Spirit. Moved by God. And we're, we're moving with a particular destination in mind. That, that you know Jesus is the spark that got us going. And Jesus is the destination for our living. And this is why we meet. 
And what does the writer to the Hebrews say as well? He says, come on, come on, we don't just meet so that we can perhaps kind of have a, kind of an experiential moment that we can have some sort of buzz or, or good feeling that might just maybe carry us through the week ahead. No, he says, come on, stir one another up to love and good works. Encourage one another in the faith. Maybe just maybe I get to encourage you this evening if I'm doing my job right. Smile at me if you're ever encouraged. Would you do that? But can you take some responsibility for this for yourself as well? Come on. The reason why you've gathered here tonight is so that you can encourage a brother or a sister in Jesus Christ. That's what it is to be the church. And to stir one another up to love and good works. How might you be a person of love as this week unfolds? What good works can you prompt amongst one another so that others, what does the Bible say? That that the people around us may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. This is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. And you know, if we're kind of really embracing this and starting to make this our practice and not being deceived by the things of this world, but pursuing the truth of Jesus Christ with everything that we've got, then do you know what? It starts to become, I was thinking about this, a little bit like a a soundtrack to our lives. What's the soundtrack to your life? What is it? I was reading in the paper this week about Ed Sheeran. He may be the soundtrack to somebody's life, I don't know. It turns out that Ed Sheeran is the soundtrack to more people's lives than you might have realized because this one ginger guy with a guitar, God loves ginger people. They are pretty much the best people. just want to throw that out there. Um, but this, this one ginger guy with a guitar is about to embark upon the world's biggest music tour ever. Can you imagine this? Seriously, his music tour, and I'm reliably informed that when he goes on tour, he basically just stands there with a guitar and sings to you. That's all he does, but he's about to go on a tour that is going to be bigger than the tour that you two did a few years ago that was before now the biggest tour ever. A guy with a guitar, the soundtrack of our lives. He's pretty good actually in some ways, isn't he? I don't know. What's your soundtrack? What do you put on when you get in the car? Do you like to listen to music in the car as you're going from A to B? What's the hill song? You're just saying that because you're in church. No, 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 you're not. I know, I know. I know you mean it. Uh, what's the, the soundtrack to our lives at the moment? We're in a season of life where we get into the car and we basically put on whatever will make the kids happy to be in the car. So we listen to kids' music. That's the soundtrack of our lives. You always knew that I was a little bit infantile already, didn't you? So, you know, I'm just getting more and more childish as time goes on. I'm sorry about that. Uh, what is the soundtrack to your life? This evening we're going to spend a moment or two considering how this world needs us to be singers of a new song. Singers of a new song. What's your voice like? We've been been warming up this evening. You know, the Bible talks actually about singing and songs. I think, I looked at this once upon a time, I think 147 times this comes up in the Bible And when you see perhaps a concept or a thought or a theme in the Bible come up so many times, do you think maybe it's actually kind of important? There are so many songs that are around about us in this world, so many soundtracks to so many lives, but God has a song for you to sing, a new song. And as we open up the the book of Revelation this evening, we're going to see it's a really good song. You know, last week um, in our evenings, we began uh, considering... Um, some things of the return of Jesus, that Jesus is coming again. And please God, he is coming soon. You know, one of the greetings of the early church was that they said to one another, Maranatha, that God is coming, Jesus is coming again. 
And they, they, they encourage one another with this truth. I'm wondering what's... Oh, there. I wonder why you all started smiling. You never smile at me. But uh, there you go. There's something that obviously caught your attention up there. Jesus is coming again. And we began to think about these things last Sunday. And as we opened up the book of Revelation, where we're going to find ourselves largely, not exclusively, but largely over coming weeks, uh, we wanted to turn ourselves, as we've just been doing, to, to see that this is all about Jesus. We don't want to get caught up in speculation or theories or, or ideas or, or Wobatai dates or any such thing and somehow lose track of the fact that this and everything is about Jesus. We want to be captivated by him. As we closed out last week, we were encouraged um, into uh, a, a, perhaps a, a period of fasting in our lives. And in Matthew 9, um, we saw how uh, Jesus was challenged that his disciples didn't fast. They didn't abstain from food. And Jesus said, well, there's a very good reason for that. <laughs> this, might, this might sound funny to you, but Jesus said, they can't fast while I'm around. Because wherever I'm around, it's a big party. That's what Jesus said. He said, to be with me is to be with the fullness of life. It's to be where everything is happening. You don't fast where the party is. Wouldn't be much of a party, would it? He said, there's going to be coming a time when I'm, I'm not going to be present. That's the time to fast. Because when you're fasting in that time, what you're saying is, oh, I wish Jesus would come again. I wish Jesus would come again. Jesus compares it to a wedding. He says, when the bridegroom's there, you don't fast. But while you're waiting for the bridegroom, yes, that's a good time to fast. To say, come and come quickly. The Bible teaches us really clearly that because of Jesus, his first coming, the fact that he did come into this world, he did walk this earth, he did change everything, he turned the world upside down. Because of that, we are living in what the Bible calls the last days. Because of what Jesus has accomplished, the cross of Christ, the fullness of his completed work. And here we are just a couple of weeks after um, celebrating and remembering and, and enjoying the day of Pentecost in our Christian calendar. It shouldn't just be a day, of course. It must be a, a lived reality. But Pentecost makes plain to us that we are in the last days. And the Bible says that upon those who follow Jesus, the people of God, he poured out his spirit. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17, Peter, full of the Spirit of God, is preaching about this. And he says to them, look, this is what was uttered through the prophets of old, through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. I don't know where the uh, defining line is between young men and old men. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, when do you stop uh, seeing visions and start dreaming dreams? Uh, I was, I was going to pick on somebody and ask them whether they'd gone into it. I'm not going to do that. Um, the, the point is, God is pouring out his spirit upon everybody. Everybody who is devoted to him. And Peter says, this is what was said. This, this means that we are in the last days. Sounds kind of apocalyptic, doesn't it? It sounds almost a bit futuristic. But the Bible teaches us that it is now. It is now. And the whole season that we're living in, the whole era of humanity is pointed towards the fact that God is drawing this world to a close. 
And, and, and we would do really well to align our reality, align our hearts, our thinking and our way of living to that. You might say, well, oh, Pastor Greg, it's really hard to, to get a sense of urgency. The Apostle Peter, he preached that sermon nigh on 2,000 years ago. How on earth can we have a, a, you know, a sense of, a, of urgency if the last days last so long? And every Christian who's ever been fully devoted to God and seen the purposes of God realized in their day have been attuned to that reality that Jesus is coming again, that everything must be pointed in that direction. I want to encourage you this evening. If you want to see your life start to mirror and echo and reflect the glory of God, if you want to look like the character of Christ, if you want to affect the change of God's grace of his kingdom come into this world, then you need to be a last day's liver. You need to be somebody who is aligned in such a manner. Don't say, ah, oh, do you know, maybe there'll be another 2,000 years. It doesn't really matter. What I do today or tomorrow, what does it really matter? Anybody who has ever really pursued the things of God, anybody who has ever seen God break in remarkably into their day, they've not allowed themselves to say that. They've said, Jesus is coming. Please God, he's coming soon. And he may come sooner than I think, so I'm going to live this day and the next day and every day as though it may be my last. What's the soundtrack to your life? What is your life singing? What is it saying? In these last days, we might ask ourselves why. Why the need for an end? Why the need for a new beginning? The Bible teaches us very clearly that this world is passing away and everything in it. You might think that that sounds like something of a tragedy, but I want you to consider it like this. Are you satisfied with this world? Now, there may be many good things in it, Maybe you've come here with a friend or a loved one this evening and, and they're, they're a joy to you and encouragement and a strength. And There might be many good experiences in this world. But this world is fundamentally broken. You think about the pains and the struggles and the miseries of this world. A, a lady was talking to me this morning as we prayed together and she said, you know, I, I have got two dads, she said, and my birth dad, he's got dementia. And that's a struggle. And she said, that the other dad who came into my life when I was just young, he didn't need to care for us, but he's been a good man and he did. But now he's been diagnosed with cancer. And it doesn't seem like they can do much. And you know, we recognize the presence of God even in that brokenness. And we prayed together. And we talked about longing for them to come to faith in Jesus. And we believe that they will. That was a good point for an amen. But I'm not satisfied with a world like that. Are you? Are you satisfied with a world where people's reality is stripped away by the power of dementia? Are you satisfied where people's bodies decay even as they stand with the, the horrors of cancer? Are you satisfied with such a thing? I know that Jesus has defeated the power of death. I want to see the reality of it. Doesn't anybody else? This world and everything in it is passing away. And do you know what? That's a good thing. It's a good thing. If you long for this, what are you longing for? I'm going to suggest to you just for these next few minutes that we're longing for a better song than the best song you've ever heard. 
There's an excellent book I've been reading recently by a guy called Simon Ponsonby. And it's called And the Lamb Wins. Spoiler alert, Jesus wins. Uh, it seems like I'm saying that a lot at the moment. I don't know. But. And he, he recollects a scene from the movie Educating Rita. Do you remember that movie? Rita in that movie, Julie Walters. You've got to be of a, you know, maybe you've got to be a bit older. I don't know to know these kind of movies. It's no Avengers Assemble, you know, but there you go. No Avengers Endgame, that's the one we were talking about. But uh, Rita, Julie Walters, is a hairdresser by day and an open university student by night. It does sound a bit like a superhero, doesn't it? I don't know. But. Seeking to create a better future for herself. Talking to her English tutor, Dr. Frank Bryant, who's played by Michael Caine, she explains why she wants to study describing a family night out in the pub. And she said, I did join in the singing, but when I turned around, my mother had stopped singing and she was crying. I said, why are you crying, mother? And she said, there must be better songs to sing than these. And I thought, yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. Sing a better song. Just in a simplistic way, she was motivated that there must be more to her life than what she was experiencing. She was moved to say, I want to give myself, I want to work hard, I want to devote myself to study whatever it might take to sing a better song with my life. Even in that moment in the pub, her mom was moved to think, there must be more to life than this. How about us? Can our lives sing a better song? Tonight we had um, read to us Revelation chapters 4 and 5. And last week we looked and saw the vision of Jesus as the the book of Revelation opened up. And, And following on from that come letters written, dictated by Jesus himself and then taken out um, to the churches around about. We've looked at those before. But here we come again. And after these letters have been dictated, these truths have been spoken into the church, John said, after this I looked. And he's starting to see things. And he's starting to hear things. And the culmination of all of these things, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, teaches us that those, this incredible cast of characters, they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God then I looked Uh, verse 11 continues and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. It's an incredible song that starts to 
to, to, to spill out. And it spill outs from an incredible cast of characters. We'll look at them just in a moment. But we've got creatures and we've got elders and we've got everybody and thousands and thousands of angels and all that is in the earth as well starting to join in with this song. And of course, they're speaking of one who is worthy. Who is worthy? Who is worthy? We sing a song, don't we? Worthy of every song we could ever sing. How's it go? We live for you. I wonder within that there comes a challenge. When we consider this Jesus, this Jesus who caused all of heaven and earth to burst forth with a new song of praise. When we consider the songs of praise that have been sung over him. And then we consider that we on occasion will say you're worthy of every song we could ever sing. Come on, do our lives match up to this? Does the song of our life match up to this? Day by day, are our days singing the praises of God? Are our choices singing the praises of God? Is that the investment of our lives, is our strength, is, is our wisdom, is everything that God has given to us, is it singing the glory of God? Do we just say that he's worthy? Or is it true in the way that we live, in the way that we speak, in the direction of our lives? Is he really worthy? Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Well, let's look at him for a moment. John, as he sees what is being opened up to him in this heavenly vision, he sees God. He sees God the Father, God the Creator. He sees also the Spirit of God. And he sees Jesus Christ also. And John is... um, as he describes what he sees, he's at pains not to actually give us a, a very clear image of, of creator, of Father God, of the Almighty One. We just don't really see exactly what is happening. But we see some things that are really instructive. John in the Spirit, chapter 4 and verse 2 says he sees a throne. A recognition that the one who is in the throne is God. He is Lord. He is Almighty. He is sovereign over everything. And there is one who is seated on the throne. And we can't really see what he looks like. The only way that John can describe it is he says he has the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Jasper and Carnelian. How are you with your semi-precious stones? Do you know about these things? I have absolutely no idea. But it turns out that these stones, in their most common occurrences, they have kind of a a reddish, browny, kind of orange appearance. And it seems that what's being described here is one who is kind of burning like a a fiery presence. He's giving off this, this kind of glow of his radiant glory. And that's all that John can do to describe God. One who is radiant, one who is fiery, one who is glorious. And around the throne there is a a rainbow that has the appearance of an emerald. I don't know what rainbows say to you, but biblically speaking, a rainbow is a sign of covenant promise. 
It's a sign of the fact that God, having destroyed the sinfulness of humanity once, said, I will never do this again. Actually, God is speaking with the rainbow that there is going to come a way of salvation. And here we find that the, the fullness, the culmination of salvation, the one who saves, and yet even that rainbow is somehow uh, changed and, uh, and, and brilliant in its, in its new emerald glory. There's a sea of glass, verse 6. You can get the sense here that John is just struggling to describe what he's seeing. He says, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. In the culture that John had grown up in and lived, seas weren't good things. They generally were places of chaos. And yet he's describing something here that is really, really different. This is a sea of glass. It's a sea of permanence. And yet it's a sea that is, it is a distinction between the heavenly realms and the earthly realms. But as glass, it's one that can be kind of seen through. That there is something, a, a transparency and a, a means of entry. And John here is describing as best he can this vision of a place and it's a place that's populated by some incredible uh, characters. Around the throne of God, 24, we can imagine smaller thrones. But seated on those thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now you might at first glance think that these are angels, not so. Actually, the angels, they're described separately. So it seems that these elders, they're not angels. Rather, they're representations of humanity. Of, of people like you and me. And here they are in the presence of God, uh, forebears in some sense of, of us coming into the presence of God. 24, why? Well, we can't be exact on these things, but maybe it's a reference to the 24 orders of the priesthood in the Old Testament. God seems to like bringing things around like that. It seems just maybe, just maybe he doesn't do things by accident, but actually by design. And into this cast of characters, then we find four living creatures. I don't know whether you've ever thought the book of Revelation is strange, but if you ever have done, then you are totally correct. The book of Revelation is wondrously strange. And here we have four living creatures. Again, God, this is not accidental. These four living creatures are echoes of those that Ezekiel many, many years before had seen. And, and we get a sense here that John, you know, he didn't just eat too much cheese before he went to bed. Because he's seeing something that has been seen before. He's seeing something that has been seen by those who want to see the, well, the, the not ordinarily seen. And these four living creatures, well, there's so much speculation about what the lion, the ox, the one with the face of a man and the eagle in flight might mean. But whatever you might speculate, there certainly is a sense that we have all of the created order here represented before God. And this powerfully speaks to the fact that the one who is on the throne is the creator. He's the creator of everything. He is the one who has set all these things into motion. And he is the one to which all these things look for their life. God, the creator. Not solely do we find all these created beings, but here before the throne, we find also the very Spirit of God. We find 
with these seven torches of fire, speaking of that perfection. The seven spirits of God, which seems to be a, a, a way of talking and representing the one we would know as the Holy Spirit. And fire, again, is a, is a, a Pentecostal reference. You remember how it was that, that the Holy Spirit came upon the people on the day of Pentecost, and as it were, tongues of fire rested on their head. And here we've got the fiery, glorious presence of the Spirit of God. But even now, even now, though the scene is set, it's not complete. A song is to be sung. But there's one to whom we're going to sing the song. And he's not yet present. I want you for a moment or two to consider again the song of your life. I don't know what is the environment that your life is lived in. It's probably not quite so startlingly glorious as this. Seas of glass, anybody? No, not so much. But there is a song that your life is singing. As I've thought about this, you know, there are so many songs that our lives can be captivated by. Somebody this afternoon, they sent me, and I'll have to ask them why because I have absolutely no idea why. But they sent me a little message and they said, this is the chorus of a song called Cloud Busting by Kate Bush. Does anybody else send you lyrics by Kate Bush in the afternoon? I have no idea, no idea why. But this is the lyrics of the song. And it seemed really relevant. It said, every time it rains, you're here in my head. Like the sun coming out. Oh, I just know that something good is going to happen. And I don't know when. But just saying it could even make it happen. I imagine that's a love song. Does anybody know anything about this song? Really odd. Uh, but just when everything can seem like it's rain, everything can seem like it's broken, yet the presence of someone that they were looking to could be present with them. And just saying it could make it happen, it seems. I, I, wonder, I wonder, can we take that a little bit further? Can we take that a little bit further? No matter what the rain of your life is, no matter what the struggles of your life are. Actually, there is one who can be present with us in all of these things. And do you know what? It's not just saying it that makes it happen. It's singing the song of prayer that makes it happen. And I wonder, are you devoted to your God? What is the song of your life? When everything seems like rain in your life, where is your hope? Where is the possibility of hope for you? Our lives... They can be captivated by so much in uh, Greek mythology. There was the siren song, wasn't there? Something that sounded so beautiful and yet would lead people onto the rocks. Is that you this evening? Has something been captivating you as a song? Something that seemed to be so full of promise, so full of possibility. Captivated you, but now your life is on the rocks. Your health is on the rocks. Relationships are on the rocks. Possibility are on the rocks. Tomorrow seems like it's going to be on the rocks. We need a better song. We need a better song. The songs that we're trying to sing with our lives. In this world, it seems to offer so many possibilities, so many songs for us. They seem so full of promise, but ultimately they fail us. 
Are the songs of our lives worthy of the one who's going to step into the scene here? Worthy of the one who wants to be the center, not just of this scene, but of your life? I was reading of an American missionary, David Garner, and he put it like this. He said, the grocery store cereal aisle has become a common metaphor for distinguishing the West from the rest of the world, and rightly so. Have you ever thought this when you wander down the cereal aisle? Just after, he says, we moved to Eastern Europe years ago, my family and I began the hunt for cereal in our city. In due course, we found three cereal options. Yes, three. First, we were disappointed, then resentful. Really? Only Honey Nut Cheerios, off-brand cornflakes and muesli? Yet our internal pushbacks did not last for long. Oh, not because our children's yearning for Cocoa Puffs and Tony the Tiger got completely snuffed, but something even more satisfying and freeing took over. Limitation birthed newfound freedom, a liberty far preferable to our former cornflake cornucopia. We discovered the clarity and the joy of simplicity. No longer was the cereal aisle an enemy of contentment, but in its simplicity, we discovered a peaceful, non-confusing aisle of contentment. When we returned for visits to the United States, we found ourselves simply undone, even freshly disgusted by the cereal attack. Too many choices. Rainbow-colored boxes of all sizes, complete with nutritional charts, cartoons, crossword puzzles, and chances for free vacations at Disney World, launched their crusade against our souls. Which cereal should we buy? Whose label do we trust anyway? Who can possibly decide which cereal is the legitimate breakfast of champions? A message lies behind the plethora of choices. It's actually quite simple. Cereal choice is completely up to me. I really am Cap'n Crunch. I am Count Chocula. Yet, there is a problem. So is everyone else. And who decides when each member of the family reigns as King Kellogg and leads as General Mills? Family feuds can even erupt over which flavor of Cheerios to buy. War ensues, and in the end, no one finally wins the lucky charm. Serial choice produces serial chaos, because serial choice, S-E-R-I-A-L, produces serial chaos. Despite the relentless rhetoric to the contrary, unlimited choice does not free us, it binds us. Autonomy at work does not bless us, it curses to put it more contextually, the unalienable rights of Americans, he says, but we might say people in the UK, are not the unalienable, unalienable rights or truths of Scripture. One choice needs to be made. Just one. And we would do well to allow the choices that we've been making in our lives to be restricted and restricted and restricted again until we realize that there is just one thing at the center of it all, and it's the one thing that we truly need. Second Peter 1 and verse 3 says to, the, says to us this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. 
He's granted us everything that we need. When you go from this place, will you be pursuing choice after choice after choice? All of the songs that this world promises to offer, but they're so unsatisfying. But can you recognize this evening, and please God when you go home, and please God tomorrow, and through this week, and onwards and onwards, that he's the one choice that you need to make. Into the scene that we've had painted for us in this wonderful book of Revelation. John said he saw a scroll. It's an almost unique scroll, writing on front and back. That was unusual. Seven seals, that was unusual. No one was found who was worthy to open the seals. This morning, we were considering some spiritual themes from the movie Avengers Endgame. And uh, there was one thing that kind of cropped up in the movie, and we didn't mention it this morning. It's a little bonus for you people who have come out tonight. Uh, well, you can decide whether it's a bonus. It might not be. But uh, there's, this, there's this hammer. I'm just going to go straight ahead and pick it up, Sam, because, you know, there you go. Not everyone can do this, apparently. Turns out that the hammer of Thor can only be picked up by one who is worthy. Who knew? And in the movie, lots of people try to pick it up and it doesn't work out very well. Captain America can pick it up because, you know, he's got good, good moral fibre and all that kind of stuff, hasn't he? Only certain people can pick it up. I feel this urge to throw it. I really, it's quite, it's quite spongy. It, it belongs to Micah, so I'm just going to give it a little fling. Oh, sorry, Grandma. Oh, good catch. Um, <laughs> turns out he might be worthy as well. I've still got the axe. I just want to point that out. No, you're not having that. This is quite hard. It'll hurt people. Um, only certain ones can pick it up because only certain ones are worthy. And they limit the sense of worthiness to you know, whether their character meets a certain standard. But here comes a scroll and it's going to unfold so much for us. It's going to unfold the ends of things and, and all the possibilities and promise and the fulfillments of things. But no one is found who is worthy until, until one steps into the scene. And one steps in and he's described as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. He is worthy. The lion, the root of David. He's not only the fulfillment of everything, he's the beginning of everything. I'm going to put this down now. He steps into the scene. What does he look like? This one who is all-powerful, wondrously so. He looks like a lamb who's been slain. That doesn't sound like power. It's confusing. It's strange. Yet herein lies the fullness of your Savior to you and to me. He is both the lion and the lamb. He is the one who is all-powerful, and yet he is the one who submits himself to be offered as a sacrifice in your place and mine, that you and I might be saved and made new. And here he comes, and he's worthy to open up all of the possibility and all of the promise. Weep no more. And so they sing a new song. A new song prompted by the one who is the creator 
who is the Lord and who is God. For them to sing these songs in heaven, well, it's just to breathe. It's the culture of heaven. It's what it is up there. For you and me, to sing the songs of Jesus above all others, I tell you, it's a fight. If you want to sing the song of Jesus and reject the songs of this world, reject the songs of your own brokenness, reject the songs of false appetites, of false avenues, reject the songs that would seem to satisfy but absolutely wouldn't, I would tell you that spiritual warfare It's not the same as in heaven. One day we'll be in the presence of God in the fullness and we'll sing and and it'll be unfettered and it'll be free and it'll be glorious. But here, I want to encourage you to sing a new song because you're in a fight and this is a weapon. I tell you, it's better than an axe and it's better than a hammer. To sing the new song of God and to get yourself into that right now, it's freedom to you and it's hope to you, but it's a fight. It's a fight to sing this new song. As John has it, the song, it has these words in it, Lord and God. You might think, ah, well, you know, those are any old words, but they're not. You see, the emperors of John's day, they they took those words for themselves. They said, I'm the Lord and God, you only call me. And John says, no, we sing a song of one who truly is, the Lord and God. It's a fight. It's saying this world, And everything in it is passing away. I won't submit myself to its broken songs. I'll sing a better song. Time is long gone. But as the band come back to lead us, appropriately enough, in a song. Can I read to you a few words from some of the Psalms? These are the songs that I pray that we can make our lives about this week. And and perhaps... You just close your eyes and and let these words speak to your spirit. If you're going to get into this fight, you're going to need some ammo. Here's some. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. conscious this evening just very briefly we've opened up a vision of the glory of God we've realigned ourselves please God around the nature of our saviour the one who is worthy 
It's worthy of the song of our life. In these words of the Psalms, we've got ammo for the fight because it is a fight for your life to be a song of his glory, of his worth, of his wonder. But tonight, as we come to sing the words that we have this evening, I wonder if there are some here tonight and you're saying, do you know that that one about lifting me up out of the pit of destruction, that's the kind of song I need. Or the one about his arm of salvation, I need that song. I need hope. I'm broken, I'm hurting, I'm needy. I don't feel up to the fight. But I want my life to be a new song. A song of the glory of Jesus. As the band begin to play, And as we come to worship God, I want to give just a very simple invitation. If you're saying this evening, I do find myself in one pit or another, but I want to enter the fray and sing a new song, a song of the one who is worthy, then I'm just going to invite you to come and join me at the front here.